This is six in the series. Next week will be the last session for this series. We'll talk about the tests of reliability and how the Bible uh, matches up with those tests, the same one that are used in the secular world for other ancient documents and see how the, how the Bible uh, stacks up with that. What we want to do tonight is look at the Bible as Scripture among other Scriptures and, and focus on how the Bible is unique, how it shows by several characteristics the divine guidance, background source of that book. And then at the end, uh, the, the last part of your handout that you have, I want to consider three reasons why the Bible is necessary for us as a guide to doing and understanding the will of God. We've been singing How Firm a Foundation, and we'll do that just in a minute. But uh, one of the verses talks about passing through fiery trials, the condition of suffering that's in the world that sometimes challenges our faith. The Bible has a great deal to say about that, but I thought to begin, I would read Paul's comments in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If anybody ever displayed tremendous faith in the gospel and in serving Christ, it was the Apostle Paul. So if faith were somehow an automatic protection against suffering, surely Paul wouldn't have suffered. And yet we know from what the Bible tells us that he did. This is 2 Corinthians 12, beginning at verse 7. Paul says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of surpassing great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. I suspect that Paul didn't use the word torment lightly. Whatever his thorn in the flesh was, he experienced it as torment, so much so that he characterized it as a messenger of Satan. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Can you think of another three times prayer for deliverance? But Paul didn't just ask. He didn't just pray. He says, I pleaded. Chances are in this room, there are individuals who have pleaded with God for relief from some situation that they were in. And the next day you wake up and it's still just like it was yesterday. I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
let's see how firm a foundation. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled? Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed. I, I am thy God, and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my gracious, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I cause thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. In through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. In down to old age all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And when hoary hair shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. The soul that on Jesus <clears throat> I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. The Bible, both the Old and New Testament, claims to be the Word of God. It is treated that way by the authors of the New Testament in particular. Christian faith accepts that the Bible is exactly that, and so the basis of our teaching and practice comes from the direction, the words of Scripture. God speaks in the written words of the Bible. His Holy Spirit enlivens our hearing and our understanding so that we can internalize the message and because it is comprehensive in its outlook on the spiritual life, then we have what we need to understand about God and creation, the origin of sin, the difficulty with 
human life, where suffering comes from, how to cope with that, God's plan for salvation to bring us to Himself. It helps us to have purpose for our existence, to understand that there is meaning for our lives as directed by God Himself. The Bible shows the end of human existence, the outcome of life, what we can expect when life is over, and that the end result is either heaven or hell, union with God forever, or permanent separation from God Himself. So having said that as the basis for our faith, many of us grew up going to Sunday school, believing the Bible, taking it at face value, but somewhere along the way, maybe it's education in high school, college, maybe it's documentaries on television, conversations with intelligent people whom we respect, we may come to have reason to question some of what we have understood to be the content of the Bible or the teachings of the Bible. There are other scriptures claiming to provide the same kind of spiritual guidance in the world. So are they all valid? Just an expression of different cultural mores? As long as a person sincerely follows and practices them, do we all wind up at the same place? Is there not really a qualitative difference? Maybe you've been led to doubt because of some teaching, some conclusion from science, or maybe the doubt comes from history, archaeology that maybe seems to suggest a different course of human events than that described in the Bible. Even, even within various segments of the Christian community, there are different interpretations of the Bible or the addition of other books, all of which may serve to muddy the waters, confuse our thinking, make us call into question the certainty of spiritual truth. So tonight I want us to think about ways that the Bible separates itself from other supposed scriptures. And feel free to contribute. Some of you have studied this in, in other contexts, and so you may be able to add some things other than uh, what I intend to cover. But I want to start by talking about the unity of the Bible. It's unity in purpose and theme, treating the same subject matter the same way all the way through the idea of human existence. What does it mean to be a human? The way the Bible accounts for suffering in the world, that it is real. It isn't something just to be glossed over, to be denied, to be explained away. There is a consistency of the plan of salvation from Genesis all the way through Revelation, which we'll take a look at just briefly. And there is this remarkable fact that in spite of tremendous opposition and destruction 
and dislocation of the people of God, both the Jews and Christians, the Bible has survived. Sometimes the destruction may have been accidental, but sometimes it was a very purposeful effort to stamp out the existence of Scripture. But it has survived, and as we'll see next week, in a totally reliable form. So let's start with unity. Consider these facts. The Bible was written from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible was written over a period of some 1,500 years. Starting with Moses, roughly 1400, 1350 B.C., to the book of Revelation written by the Apostle John, probably around 90 or 95 A.D. So 1500 years. 40 different authors spread over 1500 years. Three different languages. Most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Some parts, about half the book of Daniel, written in Aramaic, which is a more modern version of Hebrew. And the New Testament is entirely written in Greek. Three different major cultures, Mesopotamian culture, Persian Gulf, Egyptian culture, Moses, Greco-Roman culture, and some would add uh, Canaanite culture as a fourth one, but I'm, I'm just including that one in, in Middle Eastern Mesopotamian culture. Three different continents, Asia, Africa, Europe. Considering how restricted communication would have been back then, how difficult it would have been to publish and, and communicate books for these authors to communicate with one another. Most of them didn't even live in the same time, so they never met each other. They never talked. And yet, with all those differences, all those moving parts, the Bible is one story, one view of God, one view of sin, one view of the way to deal with sin from beginning to end. It is a consistent story. By itself, it seems to me, that is an overwhelming miracle. Consider the different backgrounds of these 40 authors. Moses was raised how? Egyptian son of Pharaoh. Amos was a shepherd, dresser of sycamore trees. David and Solomon were royalty in Israel. Isaiah, Ezekiel were priests. Peter and John were fishermen. Matthew was a tax collector. Luke was a doctor. <coughs> so a wide variety of life experience and, and training. And, and that's just a sampling. That isn't accounting for all of these individuals. Isn't that remarkable? That you could have a book which is really a library of 66 different books, 40 different authors, 1,500 years, three different languages, three different cultures, and it's one. The, the consistency of the message of the Bible is truly incredible.
and it isn't often given enough attention. Well, consider the distribution of, of the Bible. Before we talk about its survivability, just think about the distribution of it. Here are some uh, statistics for you. The Bible is present on every continent in the world today, is available in more than 2,000 human languages, and those are being added to every year, which means the contents of the Bible is available to most of the people on the planet. It is the most translated book in the world. We'll talk about uh, translation just in a minute. For many years, the Bible was always in first place on the list of bestsellers. And so it got so monotonous. You know what they did? Just stopped listing it. So it's still the bestseller. But, but there's one thing that bothers me about that. Uh, one, one survey that I've seen estimated that 90% of households in America own a Bible. Would you say it's pretty obvious that many of them don't pay attention to what it says? But it is available, is the point of that. It was the first book to be translated the, the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek language occurred in about 200 B.C. What happened is the, the Greek rulers of Egypt wanted to put Alexandria on the map. One way to do that was to build a huge library, which they did, and they wanted to put a copy of every book known to exist in the world in that library. They heard that the Jews had a written record of their history and their laws and, and everything re related to them. So they went to the high priest and said, can we put a copy of your scriptures in our library, but would you translate it into Greek? So the, the leaders of Jerusalem appointed 70 scholars who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek and so it came to be called the Book of the Seventy, sometimes abbreviated by the Roman numeral for 70, and called the Septuagint, Greek for 70. Well, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible became the primary Jewish Bible in the diaspora, the, the Jews who were scattered outside Palestine in, in the Greek-speaking world. It was the main Christian Bible and the, uh, mo most of you know that, that most of the books of the New Testament quote from the Old Testament. The version that is most frequently quoted is the Septuagint version. In fact, the Christians became so adept at using the Messianic prophecies and descriptions in the Septuagint version to prove their point that Jesus was the Messiah that the Jews stopped using it. Which is just that has nothing to do with the reliability of the scripture, but I just thought that was uh, an interesting little tidbit. Um, when the New Testament appeared in Greek, that was good because it was the language that was understood from one end of the Roman Empire to the other, but then very soon it was translated into Old Latin, Syriac, uh, 
which was the language of the Middle East, Coptic, which was the language of Egypt. And so very quickly, the Bible was already being translated and uh, many uh, fragments of many of those translations have survived to our time. In the modern era, the Bible was the first book to be printed on Gutenberg's press, which uh, he did in the middle of the 15th century. So uh, that meant with, with movable type, you had cheaper books, more rapidly produced. There were many more copies available. And so because of that, the Bible uh, uh, rapidly grew in availability. At the same time that the printing press was invented, there was a rise in literacy in Europe and owning books became a sign of prestige. So everybody wanted to own a copy of the Bible. Some people who couldn't read it uh, also had access to it in that way. But as European nations began to break away from the control of Rome and exercise their own independence, their own nationality, uh, their own identity, then it became important to have the Bible translated in their own language. So in the latter part of the 15th century and all through the 16th century, there were various translations into European languages of the Bible that, that were uh, appearing. In the 1990s, there was a book published by a, a professor named Alvin Schmidt. Uh, he, he first titled it Under the Influence, and he later retitled it, I think this was a better title, How Christianity Influenced the World. He really could have uh, called it How the Bible Influenced the Western World, because if you look at the table of contents, he talks about ways that the Bible, through Christianity influenced the thinking, the culture. He makes the point in the, in the book that many Americans follow the ideals that they do, not even knowing that they are Christian values. They aren't Christians themselves, but they are so much a part of our culture. Here's, here's a, some of the things that he lists. The lives of people being dramatically changed because of their encounter with Jesus in Scripture the value of the sanctity of human life. The Greeks and Romans were just exposed unwanted children. Christians would take them in and raise them as their own. Uh, hospitals, the, the hospital care began within the Christian community. The uh, increasing freedom and dignity of women for the early years that followed the example of Jesus, which was then overwhelmed as people allowed culture to influence their thinking more than the teachings of Jesus. Uh, labor rights, economic dignity, principles of modern science, principles of liberty, abolition of slavery are all things that he mentions in this book as the influence of the content of Christian scriptures, even for people who don't know that's where those ideas came from. Anybody want to add anything to any of those thoughts before we talk about the survivability of Scripture? Think about the amount of opposition that there was to both the Jews and then to the Christians in the early days and anything associated with them, which would mean the Scriptures. And then consider how precarious was the existence of any book in the ancient world. First of all, you only have books that somebody copies by hand. 
it's a laborious process, so you don't have many, even, even bestsellers back then didn't have many copies made. And then there were very few libraries, institutions, who took seriously preservation of books. So you heard of bookworms? You ever, had, you ever seen what bookworms can do to, to a, a book that just sits on a shelf? So you got the problem with pests, infestations, fires. The great library in Alexandria that I mentioned a minute ago, in eight centuries it was burned four times, including the loss of many of the books that were housed in it. So just to be a book was a very precarious existence. But then add to it Judaism. Moses wrote instructed the king to make a copy in his own hand of the books, have several references from the Old Testament to the prophets recording their words. As we mentioned, by the 200 B.C., you've got the, the canon as we know it, pretty, pretty standardized as it was translated into the Septuagint. What happened at the beginning of the 6th century B.C.? Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians. And things were rocking along pretty well until the king in Jerusalem decided that they could make an alliance with Egypt and be free from Babylon, which Babylon didn't like very well. So they sent their army, laid siege to Jerusalem, and what did they do to Jerusalem? Burned it, including Solomon's temple, including as many copies of the Scripture as there might be destroyed in that fire. Fast forward to about 200 B.C., about the time of the translation of the Septuagint, the Greeks were in control of Jerusalem. The Egyptian Greeks were friendly. They, they wanted to add to their library. They were the ones who were responsible for the translation of the Septuagint. But the Syrian Greeks weren't so much. The Syrian Greeks wanted everybody to be Greek, and that means the Jews. That means Jews, you've got to stop being Jews. So the Syrian Greeks passed a series of laws making it a capital offense for Jews to own a Torah, to read a Torah, to keep the Sabbath, to practice circumcision, to go to the temple, to do anything that looked like Judaism, including a capital offense to possess or read the Scriptures. They destroyed whatever they could find that were in the synagogues, in the temple, that were part of the Hebrew Scriptures. Starting in the 60s AD in Rome, Nero began a persecution of Christians. And from Nero to Constantine, anybody know the date for Constantine becoming emperor? Early 4th century, 313. Until Constantine made Christianity legal, there were sporadic persecutions at different places in the Roman Empire. They would break out here, break out there, subside here, subside there. But what that meant was, if Christianity was to survive, first of all, you didn't put a sign out in front of the building and say, the church meets here. But it also means that you met in secret, you met, you changed locations, you were on the move, what does that do to keeping track of things like Bibles? 
So there was the accidental destruction of books, pests, fires, whatever. There was the purposeful destruction through warfare, persecution, other things like that that made the existence of Scripture very precarious. So what we're going to do next week is to look at the number of copies of the New Testament in particular that survive and from what period of time and how that compares with other ancient books. Just the numbers result in what one scholar has called an embarrassment of riches for the New Testament. There are so many more surviving sources of the New Testament from the ancient world than there are any other book from the ancient world that is just embarrassing. We'll talk about that next week. I want to talk about the concepts, the content of the teachings of the Bible, the view of uh, several different things. There are creation accounts that survive from the ancient world. They don't sound anything like the creation account in Genesis. Basic reason. What would you say is the biggest difference between the Genesis account of creation and that from the Babylonians, the Sumerians, the Egyptians? It's the starting point. Where does Genesis start? In the beginning. God. Every other ancient creation account has multiple gods and creation happens because the gods are mad at each other. And there's this struggle in heaven between this power and that power and they're jealous and they're doing all kinds of things to each other. And out of all that, creation happens. The contrast could hardly be greater than one God who exercises his will to bring about an orderly world. That's really what Genesis is about, is bringing order out of chaos. And stamps his mark of authorship on all of creation, including human beings. The contrast between one God as creator and multiple gods could hardly be more significant than it is just in creation. The description of human beings in relationship with God. The rebellion of human beings against the will of God and Satan as a source of our struggles. God, who comes seeking us, not the other way around. In, in other religions, non-biblical religions, it is human beings who are reaching out for God. They're trying to find God, the gods. They're trying to figure out what they've done wrong to make the gods mad so they can offer the right sacrifice to buy the gods off to, to satisfy them. But it's humans seeking God. In the Bible, it's God seeking us. The contrast is truly dramatic. The gods 
And the other accounts have various powers over various things, and sometimes those powers conflict with one another. Uh, many of you studied this, the, the Greek myths about the gods somewhere in your education. Socrates said the gods acted worse than humans do. If, if humans followed the examples of the gods, they'd be destroying each other. And uh, well, in fact, uh, uh, one, one way of understanding the plagues in Egypt is that each one is against a different God of Egypt. The Ten Commandments form the, the basis both of worship and of the ethical system for Judaism. And it is consistent from beginning through the rest of the Old Testament as a basis for much of the ethical teaching of the New Testament as well. The final judgment is entirely in God's hands. It is not consigned to fate. So we, at the course of our life is not determined at our birth. We have the opportunity to repent, turn around frequently in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament. The call to people is to repent, to turn your heart toward God. So the divine nature of the whole plan is shown through fulfilled prophecy. And, and that, that's not what this lesson is about, but, but you probably have seen studies in various places listing prophecies from the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus and the church. Through the mystery of God being revealed and his plan for salvation, which Paul calls a mystery, that is progressively revealed. So Paul and Peter both talk about the prophets speaking a message that they knew wasn't for them, but it was for us, they will say, to be revealed now. Uh, and, and the things that are a part of God's mystery for salvation are beyond human reasoning. Nobody would figure that out just on the basis of human understanding, human intelligence. And through the way that the writers show the divine will as he addresses human needs, sometimes very physical needs, always spiritual needs. So here's here's uh, my uh, conclusion about all this. The Bible presents one story from beginning to end, from the initial fellowship between Creator and His creation, through the fall into sin, resulting separation between them. It is a story filled with hope because of the one who is its author. God is in control. Even sin was not outside God's plan and God's understanding. It was He who chose a faithful individual to begin again after the original creation was destroyed by flood. He also chose another faithful human being to father an individual nation of people through whom He would demonstrate mercy and compassion and 
loving kindness, and who continued to seek even when his chosen nation said they'd rather be like the non-godly nations. They'd like, rather be like everybody else. He still continued to work his will until the time was right that he revealed himself completely in his son who took on our form to show us the Father. It was the death and resurrection of that son who ultimately shows us how much God loves us. No human being could anticipate that level of love and sacrifice, grace, on God's part. And the thing of it is, God planned that before He ever said, let there be light. Sending His Son as a sacrifice wasn't a last-minute stopgap emergency decision. God planned it before the creation of the world. Now, here's the thing. There are other mystic accounts of God, creation, the need for salvation, but they aren't rooted in history. One of the outstanding features of the Bible is that this is a story that is so closely wedded to the events of history that it cannot be understood otherwise. So you have culture, language, geography, and history of the ancient Near East influencing the flow of the Old Testament. You have the beginning of the Roman Empire influencing the origin of Christianity in the New Testament. It is historically verifiable, testable, which means that the extent to which the Bible is accurate historically becomes an important matter. And within that history, the Bible describes all of its heroes of faith as human beings who have feet of clay. In other words, it tells us their failures as well as their successes and victories. And we often learn more about our own need for God in their failures. And we certainly learn about the mercy of God. Anybody have an additional thought before we look at the three necessary things about Revelation? Do I think one thing that I would add is the uniqueness of the teachings of Jesus. Um, for example, I mean, you can take the Sermon on the Mount, the way we talk about, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you, he would, it was, he would coin phrases, he would, uh, uh, the first should be last, the last will be first. He, he used concepts and ideas that, that just baffled people. And I just, I just think that the, te the uniqueness of the teaching of Jesus is beyond anything that anybody's ever heard. I think you could use that principle to talk about specific teachings of Jesus, but, but the whole body of his teaching really, really is, is uh, outstanding in that way. Okay, these three ideas about the necessity of revelation uh, come from uh, an author named James Packer who, who wrote uh, this essay probably 50 years ago, but I, th I thought 
uh, what he says about the necessity of revelation was, was particularly um, relevant and the fact that uh, we need revelation to keep us on the right track. In other words, uh, as human beings, we just aren't up to what is required to keep ourselves laser focused on God himself. So uh, he says this, the argument is that the revealed word is necessary for the knowledge of God because on one hand, God has given and appointed it for this purpose and commands that it be used accordingly. On the other hand, sin has so darkened human minds that we cannot know God apart from light that scripture brings. The inspired record, however, is necessary not for the being of salvation, but for the full and exact knowledge of it. You understand that distinction? There's no advantage in possessing the Bible, not even in memorizing the Bible, unless the content of it becomes a part of our thinking. The knowledge of salvation is the value of the written content of Scripture itself. So three reasons that the Bible is necessary. First, the revealed word is necessary because of the complexity of revealed truth. Think about us as finite creatures. All we know is the physical world we live in. All we know is time and space. All we know is beginning and end, life and death. Things wear out. Nothing stays the same. How could a finite mind like that ever comprehend the infinity of God, eternity, timelessness, the spirit-filled, non-physical being of God? And then, therefore, a love that is so great as to extend to us who are sinners and rebels against God. We could never comprehend that. It is, there was a philosopher in the 17th, 18th century, European philosopher, who said theology, that is, belief in God, is nothing but anthropology magnified to its greatest degree. Anthropology, the study of man. So you take the best qualities of human beings, magnify them to the greatest extent, and that's God. So that, that's all it is. You realize how absurd that is? Human beings could never comprehend this plan of salvation, this being, this God, this kind of love. It just isn't possible. It is a complex idea and we need God's revelation. Who could ever understand, who could ever dream up that love God and love your neighbor means love your enemy? I mean, where, where in any human experience would that idea come from? Or 
we should walk in his steps or we should be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Those ideas need revelation. Second, the revealed word is necessary because the church constantly needs its renewing impact. The church does. The church is not sufficient to lead itself. There is no hierarchy. There is no tradition. There is no length of history that would keep the church on the right track. That's what the Protestant Reformation was all about. The psalmist confessed, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We need that divine illumination. Isaiah says it this way, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. The New Testament is our source for saving truth. The Old Testament describes what God is like. Short of the tremendous love shown in His Son. The New Testament testifies to the saving truth that we need. The writer of Hebrews says, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the soul and divides joints and marrow. He's not talking about physical body joints and marrow. He's talking about the Word, if we will allow it, will penetrate us. It will show us who we really are. It has that power because it is revelation. Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. In other words, all those scriptures say the Word does something now if we'll let it. Because of the power of the Spirit living in us, resonating with those words that the Spirit Himself guided to be written, we have a tremendous tool for the spiritual life if we will use it, if we will allow it to be so. Third, the revealed Word is necessary as a foundation for our life of faith. Can we possibly understand what the Bible means by faith. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul says in Galatians, everyone who comes to God through faith in Christ, just like Abraham, becomes a descendant of Abraham's. Abraham's descendants become more than just his physical descendants, but his spiritual descendants, those of us who share his same faith. But Paul even says something else in that, in that passage in Galatians chapter 3 that personifies Scripture. Listen to what he says. The Scripture foresaw 
that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. The scripture foresaw and announced the gospel in advance. Scripture, in other words, is active. Abraham believed all of God's promises because he believed in the one who promised. That's what Hebrews 11 says, talking about faith. Second Peter 1, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises. Do you trust the one who made the promise? Do you know his promises? We have to have an accurate rendering of those promises, do we not? We have to know that we can trust the content of our Bible. When I was three, I lived for the summer with my grandparents. And it was one of those country houses way out in the country north of Florence, Alabama, where at night there were no street lights. There was a gravel road, in fact, in front of their house. So when it got dark, it was really dark. And the trees were full of singing frogs and crickets and whatever else. Were, I mean, it was just the, there was a chorus going on as we would sit on the, in the swing on the, on the porch and, and they would talk, tell stories and shell whatever they'd picked out of the garden that day. And one morning, my grandfather said, let's go for a walk. I said, OK. So we crossed the gravel road into this, what to me was a dense woods. I thought there might be Indians out there, bears, tigers. I didn't know. But but so we went. I couldn't see because it was there were trees everywhere. And then pretty soon we came to a cornfield. That didn't help me any because the corn was way over my head. I was only three. I was holding my grandfather's hand and we walked through the rows of corn. And it came out to the road and it was getting hot. And the sun was beating down. I was getting thirsty. I was getting really tired. Then all of a sudden we turned the corner and there we were at the house. I didn't know where we were. Didn't know where we were going. Couldn't see my way. But I knew who had my hand. I trusted him. That's the faith we must have. Here's a final comment from uh, Packer. And then we'll be through. If the canonical scriptures were not God's revealed word, but only a fallible human witness to God's word, no present day Christian could emulate Abraham's faith because none could be sure that he had a single definite promise of God on which to rest. Those who jettison the evangelical concept of a totally trustworthy, inspired scripture must exchange the rational Bible notion of faith as walking in the light of God for the irrational existential idea of faith as a leap in the dark and must abandon the firm foundation of the divine promises for the yawning abyss of an empty nihilism. If you don't know what nihilism is, look it up. Next week, the test of reliability.